Yeah, all right. Okay, I'll start now. One, two, three, four, five. Welcome to the Austin Morris New Zealand podcast yet again. And we're in the middle of the, um, well, we're getting towards the end of the first week of lockdown in New Zealand due to the coronavirus. It's the 31st of March, 2020. And we've got our resident philosopher, producer, musician, teacher, everyman, Mark Patterson. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Dave. Thanks very much. Just looking at all the exercise that's being done outside, here are a few dogs that are waiting for the lockdown to be over so they don't have to be walked. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So they can just run rampant. That's right, road. yeah, or sleep. Yeah. Now, today, Mark, and this was before we had shutdowns and viruses and so forth, you floated the idea of the topic of democracy. And yeah. I'm very, very interested to know why you've chosen that topic. Well, it's a, it's election year here in New Zealand. It's election for the president in America. And um, I, I think it's something that we, we hear a lot about, but maybe our um, maybe each person's individual interpretation of democracy is different and maybe every country's interpretation of democracy is different. So that's why I thought it'd be interesting to have a wee look at it. Okay, good on you. Um, <clears throat> I'll start with a, a conservative um, definition to throw at you. Um, and this, this definition comes from the 1933 Oxford Dictionary. Um, and it dates the uh, word democracy back to 1574. Right. Um, and basically says, government by the people, that form of government in which the sovereign power resides in the people and is exercised either directly by them or by officers elected by them. Right. So if there are a few people that would think that we've um, moved a little bit far away from that, wouldn't, wouldn't they? Well, I think so. Yeah. So in, in looking at um, the different forms of democracy, I mean, when people talk about democracy, they seem to hold it out as a pure ideal, do they not? That's right. And, and yet it, it's, um, it, it runs a gamut, doesn't it, from, from people that are deeply involved in everyday decision-making that affects them and their country to people that shrug their shoulders and it doesn't really have much to do with them until it kind of stands on their foot. Can you, Mark, think of a democracy in the world today that would fulfil that pure definition? Well, I'm, I'm not... Yeah. I, I'm not an expert in, in um, political theory, but... I, I do kind of observe a few different things. One of the things that I, I'm fascinated by is the way that California has um, what might be seen as an elevated form of democracy because they have um, ballots and referenda and options for people to make a decision on. And just reading my way through it, I was wondering how your average person in the street would even understand how it works. So in a pure sense, perhaps their idea of democracy really does give everybody a chance to have their say, but 
do people understand what they're having a say about or do they get ultimately confused by it? You know, you're pointing out a very fine line, it seems, between how democracy can waver over onto the other side, to the right-hand side, as it sure. were, and, and take away decision-making of the people because they don't know enough. Yeah, well, that's right, and that's that's been an argument that tyrants have used over the years, isn't it, that um, people don't know enough, therefore we have to guide them and lead them. Well, yes. I think one of the one of the tenets of democracy um, is the same um, whether it's a, a democracy or whether it's a tyrant who's in charge, and that is ultimately people have to go along with what the leader says, and in a way they they call this legitimacy. So if um, if people aren't going along despite being forced to with, with what the leader says, then the, the leader's going to fall. So that was one of the reasons that the Berlin Wall came down, because the, um, the government of East Germany had lost legitimacy. They'd lost the support of the people. It's not that people said, hey, we love you, East German government. It's more that they um, no longer supported them, however begrudging it was. Yes, we're no longer cowered by you, despite the fact that you've got nearly a million Secret Service operatives in our midst. Yeah. Everyone, everyone reports on everyone. That's right. And, and at the start, that was a fantastically optimistic time, wasn't it? The, the time when, um, when it seemed like freedom and democracy was going to win. It was. I mean, um, and maybe Gorbachev, the Russian premier, had a fair bit to do with that at the time. He seemed to be, dare I say it, more, more democratic than many. Yes. And, 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 and that wonderful irony where Bernie Sanders is more socialist than any of the other contenders in the American um, elections at the moment. So yeah. straight away, you've got here, here we've got a... a a, a famous democracy that has a socialist who's um, making a tilt at winning it, and there you have a totalitarian state that had a socialist trying to um, trying to run it. So it's not it's not black and white, and it's not um, it, it's not one or the other. There are shades along the way. It seems to me that there are two things that um, might define those shades. One, one seems to be the size of the democracy, and I'll come, come back sure. to that in a minute, and maybe New Zealand's a good example of that. Um, and the other is, is a point that you've raised about the acceptance of the people. And it seems to me that the acceptance of the people, pretty clearly and obviously, is, is, emanates from their comfort zone, their day-to-day... Comfort zone. Well, whether, whether you live in a democracy or um, a totalitarian state, the the day to day lives of people um, is important. So, people in China, for instance, a, a lot of them are just going on with their lives. They're doing they they are being a baby, growing up, having um, falling in love, getting married, having more babies. 
whether they're living in a democracy or not in a democracy, that life carries on, same in North Korea. I mean, heaven forbid, I wouldn't suggest that anybody would want to copy North Korea, but sometimes we tend to forget that life in totalitarian states still goes on. Sure, it's brutal at times and the state might make decisions that harm you, but that also happens in capitalist states. Yeah, the the poor and the downtrodden, uh, by definition, at the end of the end of the line, aren't they? Yeah, it, it doesn't matter whether you're poor and homeless in North Korea or poor and homeless in North America, does it? No, and we've we've had um, an example both in New Zealand and America recently with the payments for people affected by the coronavirus. Uh, so we've had the opposition leader in New Zealand saying, oh, we don't want to give, you know, too many of the poor a rise in the unemployment benefit or yeah. uh, welfare benefits. And and similarly in America, they've, they've tried to weight the government donations to the big end of town rather than to the poor. Yeah, well, the New Zealand uh, the, the New Zealand situation was a little bit different because we had a budget coming out in a couple of months, and it was quite likely that those increases to benefits would have happened anyway, whether there was a coronavirus or not. So, um, the way that I see it, the opposition were were saying, "No, you don't do that," which is kind of their default mechanism. Um, and the cynics were saying, well, the, the Prime Minister is, is using this coronavirus as a, as a chance to um, do her policy making. But they seem to forget that it would have been policy anyway and that the, the, the benefit rises would have happened as part of the normal run of events. Yeah, there there always seems to be a dragging of the chain by one side of politics um, to giving money to those at the bottom of the of the heap. But is that just part of the tension that goes with a democracy? Yeah, the the, the terrible irony is that the um, as people get wealthier and more. Um, more attuned with how with how how um, the government works, they're more inclined to be involved with the democracy, and therefore are more inclined to um, do things that to vote for things that benefit them rather than that benefit the poor. Yeah, it's always it's always um, fascinated me though that it, the majority of people. Um, tend to be hit by that sort of reasoning, and yet many of them can be persuaded to vote against what I would see as their best interests, because otherwise you wouldn't have conservative governments, ultra-conservative governments in a democracy, would you? No, you wouldn't. Although I, I do have this thought that, um, that conservatives ultimately think that the world is a is a nicer, more even place, and that everybody will look after each other, and that um, 
on the left-hand end of the spectrum, the governments think that the world is not a nice, even place and people need to be compelled to look after each other. So in a way, you could say that, that conservatives are optimistic and socialists are pessimistic. <laughs> You've always got a slant on it, haven't you? Sorry. <laughs> That's what comes of being a philosopher, I suppose. Yeah. So, um, just just digressing a, a little bit, Mark, to the size of a country. Now, I've sort of done a little bit of a research before our talk talk today, and although there's debate and argument about which is the oldest democracy, one one of the things that's been suggested is that the oldest democracy was formed in Iceland by the Vikings in 930 AD. Oh, right. Okay. And and that Iceland has the longest-running parliament called the Althing. Yeah. Now, I believe that there was some sort of aberration that happened around 1800, but as ever in political history, that, that's yeah. been glossed over and Iceland is deemed to have uh, the longest-serving democracy. Yeah. J- just And then... Superimposing that onto the coronavirus, it's interesting to note that um, the whole population of Iceland was tested yes. for the coronavirus, and and they have had minimal infection. Yeah, well, that's one of the problems with with coronavirus, isn't it? Is that we we um, we don't we don't have whole population testing. So that Irish, that Icelandic, sorry, I nearly said Irish, that Icelandic um, data might become really useful in the future. Yeah. And look, you would think that that is a, a, almost an authoritarian move to test the whole population, that if you sort of take democracy in its supposed purest form, people will do what they like. And, and that's sort of been the the spotlight has been shone on that, hasn't it? Under the current circumstances. Oh yeah, it's just it's just fascinating. Is that that um, to get back to the idea of legitimacy that we think that our government is doing a good job and we trust them, so we are going along with their coronavirus measures. So much so that we've got in New Zealand, we've got a dedicated. Um, place where you can daub in people that aren't following the process and it's been inundated. Now imagine if we were um, if we didn't give the government legitimacy, if we said en masse, no, we don't believe you, then that couldn't go ahead. So in, in one sense it, it heartens me a lot that that we are trusting enough of our government to believe what they say and go along with it, and it worries me slightly that we are so keen to dob in people that we think are getting outside of their bubble. But it's um, in New Zealand, we, we seem to have a, a much more obedient way of going about it than they do in Australia, and perhaps our lockdown measures are a little bit more stringent than they are in Australia, but um, Australians don't seem to be wanting to go along with it as much as we are in New Zealand. Yeah. Now, do you want to just, you know, for the sake of our overseas listeners, maybe um, trace how the lockdown has occurred in New Zealand and and at what stage it occurred? Sure. Well, um, about 
uh, eight or nine days ago, the, the, the government announced four levels of pandemic um, action and straight away put us into pandemic level two, which was discouraging large gatherings and encouraging work from home. And then very rapidly, we went into pandemic level four, which basically said that all businesses stop except those that are essential or that can operate without interaction with other people. So um, supermarkets are operating, um, small stores are operating, people are allowed to go out but aren't meant to go out too far from home, and um, we're in this situation for four weeks. So do you relate that to the size of New Zealand? Do you think that there's more homogeneity in the... New Zealand population because we're only about what five million people. There, yeah, mm. yes and no. It, it, I I think that we're a very very practical country, and um, we can see that this coronavirus thing might be bad for us. I think that we have a lot of trust in our. Um, Prime Minister. I, I'm not sure that if we've had some of our other Prime Ministers that we would have had quite the same cooperation. Uh, there was a famous old um, grumpy Prime Minister called Robert Muldoon and I can't imagine people going along with what he said. Um, I think that we... we we are isolated and we get the fact that isolation is going to be a good thing. So because we're we 20,000 kilometres from London um, and sort of 2,000 kilometres from our nearest large neighbour, we as a country understand that we have a chance to be separate and that uh, that high level of isolation is something that, that, as a whole, we're getting into and approving. Your fears about what might happen once this is over, um, is do you foresee a possibility that regulations may stay that have been implemented at this time? I don't. I don't have any fears for democracy in New Zealand. I, um, I, I don't think that people are going to say, "Hey, that was great having the government tell us what to do on a what we can do like minute by minute." I don't have any fear for that. I do have a bit of a fear for other countries that um, it might generate a rise in, in nationalism. A yeah. distrust of, of people from other countries. Yeah. I mean, the one in our sights a lot is America, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's interesting watching what's going on with them. Yeah. Well, um, one uh, of the more... Sorry, yeah, carry on. I was just going to say, one of the one of the more interesting asides was when when Trump said that he might make quarantine New York and the 
and the um, the response from New York was to say, well, that's a declaration of war. That's, that's very interesting, isn't it? Just how fragile is the um, how fragile is America? Very fragile, I would have thought. And it's just um, in the midst of this um, Corona um, debacle over there, um, almost slipping under the carpet unnoticed, has been a series of proposals by the ruling party to um, detain people uh, without trial um, and to modify um, arrest procedures, arrest and detain procedures. Yeah. And, and underlying that is the, is the fact that we really don't quite know enough about coronavirus just yet. I was reading this morning um, a long, well-referenced article by an epidemiologist who was talking about the fact that we, we haven't got enough information to know what its fatality rate is. And some terrible things have happened, obviously, in Italy. It's a, it's a really bad situation. But um, apparently they've had bad flu epidemics in previous years that have taken out literally thousands of people. So how does this compare with that? And um, it might be that we look back on this and think, maybe we've been using a sledgehammer to squash an end. Really? Gee, that's a controversial view. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that that is the case, but I'm just saying that the that, that informed opinion, I think, about this thing comes from people that like epidemiologists who are, uh, are well-versed in statistics and disease and the spread of it. Because ultimately this is about maths, isn't it? This is about everything to do with it. It's about maths. You have to stay two metres away. The, the um, death rate is so and such and such. And um, what, do we, what, what do we believe is a successful um, response to, to it? And um, these are mathematical questions. Yeah. If, if we put more uh, power in the hands of our government, um, to that extent, does it diminish uh, democracy? So democracy is a balance between what's good for the individual and what's good for society as a whole. And at the moment, what we're tipping it towards is we're saying, if we do this isolation, then it's going to be good for society as a whole. And um, that's a good thing about democracy. So in a way, we're choosing by, by going along with the isolation to say, yeah, what's good for society as a whole is more important than the individual right at the moment. Yeah. And that flies in the face of American individualism, does it not? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it, it does. And maybe, um, maybe when we look at this a few years down the path, we'll see that... Um, that different society structures coped with it a little bit differently. So in America, you've got the federal government, which is much mistrusted by 
just about everybody looking from the outside, it seems. And then you've got the states. In New Zealand, we've just got a government. We, we don't have federal power. Um, you know, we're not split up into, into different states with, with separate powers. In Australia, it's a federal um, country. So, again, you've got the difference between how people see the federal government and how people see the state government. So if you look at both Australia and the United States, maybe there is something in, their, um, in the way that their country is structured that has meant that they can't respond so well to this virus. That's a very good point. I've had um, direct experience of Australian federalism and you can get, um, you know, take the child welfare system or the family law system in Australia. Totally, well, not totally, but different variations, different nuances, different um, procedures in different states. Um, yeah. And once someone moves interstate, which is very easy to do, you have quite a complicated situation. Yeah, and... The, the delay in America's response did seem to be the result of the difference between what a state could do and what um, the federal government could do. The federal government still needs to be a unifying force, but as you say, maybe the operation of federalism is, is you know, to some degree a disjointed sort of a process. Yeah, that's right. And um, uh, again, looking at it from the outside, heaven, heaven forbid that, that I'm going to be an expert on politics, but I don't know that the, either the Prime Minister of the Australia of Australia or the, the President of the United States is a unifying force in their countries. I would say that the um, the personality you you made that point before that the personality of our current uh, prime minister in New Zealand Jacinda Ardern seems to have been a unifying factor that she takes a gentle yet clear approach to things. Uh, there was a great meme the other day that said um, something about along the lines of it seems like. All of a sudden, grumpy old uncles are in charge of us, except in New Zealand, where we've got a really cool mum and she makes us chicken soup. <laughs> so so looking around the world, and, and do, do you want to have a look, uh, you know, more of a look at America? Because there just seem to be so many aberrations um, going on, um, so many things that contradict the, the concept of democracy. I mean, the press seems to be stifled, they're abused. Um, the judiciary is stacked with people who seemingly are unfit or definitely are just going to vote one way or, you know, uh, in decision-making. There, there is a bit of an argument that I was reading um, recently that, that, that the law is more important than politics and so that people are more inclined to, to reach for a legal remedy for something than they would be to get interested in politics. And um, 
I guess people are interested in politics to the extent that they can have a law enacted with which they agree. But um, this particular story was about the UK and it was saying how many um, laws and regulations there are in the UK and people's first response to something is to to reach for a law to remedy it or to find a politician to make that law. So rather than rather than look at politics as being the expression of their their wishes, they look for law to do the same thing. So if the courts have been stacked, as it were, um, mm -hmm. where does where does that leave the law? Well, I think that varies from, from, from country to country. And um, down here in the old New Zealand, I think we're quite lucky. We don't, we don't seem, seem to have um, judges that we think are going to jump one way or another. We don't have judges that are very obviously publicly liberal and others that are conservative. But in America, yeah, it's at the top of the pyramid there. You've got the Supreme Court judges, and they are um, known to be either liberal or conservative. Yeah. Now, look, I've been, as I said, Mark, I've been doing a little bit of reading and preparation because I try, I've got to try and keep up with your erudite self. <laughs> and, and so I had a look at a book called People Power, yeah. A Guide to, to Democracy. And, and I'll read you a little bit of a quote from that just to sort of set the tone for the variability. And that's what you've been talking about. You didn't yeah. need to read the book to, um, you know, illustrate that democracy is a fairly, you know, varied sort of thing. So th this author, uh, Dan Jelinek, says, democracy and how it works is not set in stone. Although many of its principles have remained unchanged for centuries, most of the detail about how it works has changed over the years out of all recognition. What is more, any part of it could still be changed again at any time. And, and then he goes on to say, the balance of power of government, the power of parliament and the power of the people is as important for us to think about and debate today as it ever was. Yeah, of course it is. And there are, there are huge uh, issues coming up in the world where democracy is going to be important. Um, you know, the rise of artificial intelligence, for instance. And the, the more complicated democracy gets uh, and the more it turns people off it, then the more dangerous things become. We tend to hold up an ideal of, you know, what democracy is. But, you know, history is, is not a good recorder in many ways, is it? Um, in, the, in the sense that everybody can, everybody would interpret it slightly differently, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah we eulogise this sort of uh, perfect thing, but we're, we're, ne we're now sort of in the... Uh, the realms of democracy being a, a moving sort of a feast, as it were. Yeah, sure. Yeah. My eyes were opened a little bit uh, around about the time when Eastern Europe was opened up and I was talking to someone that had lived there and I asked her in, in detail what it was like and she said, it's quite a lot like New Zealand. 
thought, that wasn't what we've been told to believe. But, um, you know, again, just getting back to that idea that that people, people are born, they grow up, they get married, they have babies, they grow old, and um, that happens whether or not your country is is portrayed as a leader of democracy or whether it's a, portrayed as a totalitarian state. I'm not saying that, that democracy is bad. I'm just saying that sometimes we, we forget the idea that life goes on. Yeah. And again, like yourself, I've heard anecdotal evidence of um, ordinary Russian citizens being in love with um, Mr. Putin. That's right, especially when he hasn't got a shirt on. God. <laughs> <laughs> now, this this might be a quirky aside, but one of one of the things I've come across in in my readings is, is that Russia has got the potential to be squeezed economically, and that that if it's squeezed hard enough, then the population will be suffering. And and therefore, Mr. Putin may be in a precarious position. Yeah, possibly. But but um, right, I suppose the way that I'd see it is that is that Russia was um, pretty totalitarian, and, and slowly it opened up. But under Putin, it's gone back to being more totalitarian, and he he displays as a as a strong leader that that keeps the people just happy enough that things tick over. Mm. So a key seems to be the, as you said earlier on, the acceptance of the majority of the population. That's right, the legitimacy. And the other thing that fascinated me was that the one of the, there were several reasons for the big stock market tr- crash of recent days, but one of them, was to do with Russia and Saudi Arabia not agreeing on an oil price. So uh, the result was that they lowered the oil price. And possibly the reason they did that was to squeeze the American oil producers out of the market because America's become self-sufficient with oil. So you have this interesting situation where um, Putin and Saudi Arabia are having a wee look and going, Oh, maybe America's a little bit vulnerable at the moment. Let's squeeze them on oil. And um, as a result, there was a great big share market crash. But you're right about Russia having the ability to be squeezed economically. It's not nearly as wealthy as America is. But what would be the result of them being squeezed? Would that be more democracy or less? tend to think it would probably be less democratic in Russia if things got harder. Yeah, yeah. so the the leader would have to become more stringent in his control of the population. Well, people would, people would look for that in their leadership. So the, the, the character of Russians as a whole, and as much as you can generalise about things, is that they like strong leaders. Right. Do you favour one model or the other? I mean, we, we've been brought up in a democracy in yeah. this part of the world. Yeah. Um, 
and so therefore we're probably biased. Um, but you've you've also foreshadowed that you know people from China or people from Russia or wherever um, can just lead ordinary lives and um, live and die like the rest of us. I think uh, I think living down here in New Zealand is like living in paradise, isn't it? We have a few little problems, but um, we we are our own country, as I've mentioned before. I think and. Um, I think that the way things took over here is nice. We get a chance every three years to change our government so they don't do too much that's going to annoy us because they know that they know that in, in two and a half years they'll be out on the air. Yeah. So how do you see democracy operating in New Zealand? I mean, do you follow parliament or where, where do you get your information from? Um, I, I am a bit of a politics junkie. I, I do I do follow things, and I do see, um, and there are things that happen that annoy me, and that I see populists and nationalists and and um, greedy capitalists, and and um, I see um, dreamy socialists, and most of the time it all comes down to walking down a bit of a middle path. Yeah, so are we a middling sort of a country in many ways? We're not given to excesses. No, I, middling's good, yes. <laughs> middling's good. Now, you have to remember that, that um, being Prime Minister of New Zealand was so unexciting for John Key that he just resigned. There was no scandal or or um, terrible thing happened or coup. <laughs> it was just that he got a bit bored with it. And yeah. That that encourages me. Does it? Oh right. yeah. He, yeah, he <laughs> well, went it off encouraged me that, encouraged me that he resigned, but the the fact that um, that yeah that he found it so unexciting that he just wanted to resign <laughs> makes me feel right. that we are a sleepy little country. Yeah. So just as we move towards um, closing this discussion about about democracy, Mark, what what do you think about the concept of closing New Zealand off? I mean, you've painted this picture of an idyllic, you know, fairly sleepy, middling sort of a country where or the citizens are essentially, you know, well cared for and, and happy. Um, what fit, if we close... Sorry? Fed chicken soup. <laughs> Fed chicken soup by the Prime Minister. She tells us that she's going to put a teddy bear in her window during the, the shutdown and everyone yeah. all around the country has put little bears or dolls in the window. Um, so what if we continue the, the shutout of international visitors and just close the borders and, and lead our own little lifestyle? Is that anti-democratic? Um, it, it is in the sense that we um, that if we do that, we're going to end up being a much much poorer country. And I've been fascinated by the fact that the um, that the whole closing the borders thing is not something that just happens all of a sudden. It, it takes a long time. So. Um, you know, first of all, there are people that are in the country that are from overseas that aren't able to get out, 
And secondly, there are people that um, are still coming in because they've been overseas. And so it, it's not like a it's not like a pull drawbridge up sort of situation, which is what some people wanted to see. That's just not practical. No, no. But uh, yeah, I, I suppose I, I've often um, ruminated how you know some of the things that are visited upon us uh, we we could do without if we, if we were more introspective and inward looking but in a way you're saying that that potentially is is not a healthy way to go no it's not and it's not it, uh, it would not lead to the majority of us having a good lifestyle because we are inextricably linked with the rest of the world economically at least right so look here we are in new zealand during a shutdown we're able to have an open discussion about democracy and it's going to go to air and anyone can pick up on it and we're not worried at all are we no we're not no <laughs> we're a tiny little bit worried about the virus but overall not too much no and personally we don't think that the secret police are going to come and knock on our door because we've been talking about government and freedoms and no so well of course that they could they they could um bug the device that we're recording on, but then why would they? Because it's going to go public in a few minutes anyway. <laughs> and that kind of <laughs> leads back to what we talked about a few episodes ago about um, how being public is the default. So let's see what happens, eh? Let, let's send this out to the public and let's say thanks very much, Mark, for your thoughts on democracy. Yeah, thank you, Dave, and thanks to everybody that listens to these, wherever you are.